Thanks, Jay. All right. If you have your Bibles, you're going to need to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, because that's where we're going to be today. Um, I do want to just remind you, um, by the way, thanks, Jay. Jay did a great job, right? That was new and different. Um, these, uh, these connection cards are really, really cool, um, so take a minute with them. That's why we wanted to give you some time. We decided that it's difficult um, on Sunday mornings when uh, we give you those prayer slips and say, hey, write down how you need to be prayed for, and then you either are writing through the singing or you're writing through the message or something in order to get ready before the plate comes by. And so uh, rather than have you be rushed, we just wanted you to be able to take your time. After the service, you can spend time. There's boxes by the doors. You just drop them in. We collect them the same way, and we'll get everybody praying for you. But there's a lot of information on the front. If you haven't filled that out, do that on the back. Um, let us know how we can pray for you. And then please, please use those, uh, these cards that Jay was talking about. They're a great opportunity. He was talking about you leave them in a restaurant. Here's what you do. Double your normal tip and leave it with the tip. Okay? Don't do this. I tipped a buck and left the Grace Fellowship card. I don't want to get calls from that. Okay? But um, it's a great opportunity just to kind of in, invite people, friends, neighbors. It's got all the information for the entire weekend on it. So make sure that you've got that and you can make use of it. Okay. Uh, how are you enjoying the election season? Isn't it fun so far listening to the politicians? No? You're not? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, I'm not going to get into how I feel about any of the particular uh, people who are running except just to say that isn't it great that you, you know that if ever, 24 hours a day, because it's a 24-hour news cycle, right? So 24 hours a day now, you could turn on TV and have someone tell you what you want to hear. That's the beauty of election year, right? Because, because we, there are certain things that we, we love to hear. Every one of the candidates that's running for any major office has an entire staff and an entire budget dedicated to figuring out what it is people want to hear, Right? They are measuring what we click on our internet browsing. They, they are calling us and asking poll questions. They are doing all kinds of stuff to figure out what is it that pushes the buttons of the American people because we've got to know what they want to hear because if I can be the politician who is saying what they want to hear, then maybe they'll vote for me. If I can be the politician who promises to give them what they want to have, then maybe they'll vote for me. And so it's not so much about figuring out what your platform is and what you believe in, it's about figuring out what the people want. And oftentimes you'll find that a politician may have three speaking engagements in one day, right? In the morning, he's speaking to a group of teachers. And so he's talking all about education and the importance of education and how we ought to pay our teachers more and all that kind of stuff. And then he goes off to some uh, factory workers and he talks about the importance of safety in the workplace and how the, uh, the uh, uh, employers ought to be doing more to take care of the workers and all that kind of stuff. And then he goes and speaks to a big fundraising gala with a bunch of rich people. He talks about how we ought to incentivize uh, tax cuts for the big corporations in order to do... And, and you just say what they want to hear, right? Now, am I cynical or do other people feel that way? Right? Yeah. There, there's a whole art to saying what people want to hear because there are certain things that we would really like to believe are true. And one of the reasons that I'm excited about the book of Ephesians is because in Ephesians, Paul doesn't pull any punches. It doesn't seem as though he's running for office, does it? He is not going to soften the blow. He is not going to back up and not tell you what you need to hear. 
He's going to tell you the truth because the scripture says the truth sets you free. And he's way more interested in people being set free than he is in people liking what he has to say. And let's be honest, if you know anything about Paul's life, he spoke pretty boldly and people didn't like it. And he took a beating for the truth. But he refused to speak something that wasn't the truth because he understood that while people have certain things that they would like to believe, those certain things, if they are not true, are going to hurt people and not help them. So there's a lot of stuff that we would like to believe. One of the big things in our culture that people would love to believe is this whole idea that at their core, all people are basically good. Have you heard that? I just believe people are good. I, just, I believe that at their core, people want to do the right thing. There's, there's this very common idea out there that people at their core are basically good. And the question is, what does the evidence show? I'm not talking about the, the um, you know, polls or, or studies or anything. I'm just saying, if you have lived on the earth for, say, 15 minutes, right, then you have enough experience to be able to gauge whether this idea that people at their core are basically good is a true statement or not. Because Raise your hand if you're parents. Parents, raise your hand, okay? Keep your hands up if you have at, at least two kids because that makes you a special expert in this. Okay, go ahead. Um, because here's the thing. When you had your first child, do you remember that day when they finally got old enough? They are about 9, 10, 11 months old to where they could really understand what you had to say. And do you remember that day when you sat down your 11-month-old and he said, listen, here's the thing. I want you to be rebellious. Remember that day? Remember how you told them that they need to have their own way no matter what and that what they want ought to drive them and they ought to just throw fits if they don't? Remember that talk you had with them? No, you didn't have that talk? So your kids didn't do that? Oh, somehow they were willful on their own? And then when you add the second one to the mix, that's when it gets interesting. I, I say, you know, you get certain, certain credit for being a parent when you have one kid. But when you add a second kid, it's a whole other ballgame. Because when you have whatever, let's say a four-year-old and a two-year-old, right? Did you, did you remember that time when you trained your two kids about how when there's a lot of toys there and you're, in, and you're playing over here with a toy and you look over and you see your sister reaching for a toy, you should drop what you have, run over and grab what she wants. Remember that when you taught them that and how good they were at learning that? Remember that day when you taught your son to beat his sister over the head with a truck? Remember that? We don't teach them this stuff, do we? And yet somehow, some way, they figure it out. And the scripture says that we are born in sin. Nobody has to teach us. Nobody has to convince us that we ought to sin. But people will argue that people are basically good and it's their environment that messes them up. If that's true, explain Adam and Eve. What was wrong with that environment? A perfect relationship with God, a perfect relationship with one another. No sin, no death, no danger, no fear, none of that kind of stuff. And still, first opportunity they get, what do they do? They become willful and selfish and they turn on God. And, and you can look at them and go, boy, those terrible people. Except they're just like us. We inherited that from them. And so this idea that somehow people are basically good is, is just, it doesn't hold up to scrutiny. And, and that's why 
it's so frustrating when you hear politicians standing up and telling us about how if you vote for the right leader or have the right program or we can uh, fund the right program or get the right thing going in this area, the right thing going in that area, then we'll see crime go away and we'll see families do better and all that kind of stuff. The truth of the matter is you can't legislate that stuff because people are in their hearts desirous of rebellion. Now, that's not popular to say. I'm sitting here looking at a whole bunch of people who could turn on me and rush the stage right now. You know, but it's true. And Paul's not going to hold back in the book of Ephesians and telling us what's true. People can argue all they want and say that men are basically good, but the evidence to the contrary is overwhelming. Another common belief today. The path to heaven is found in sincerity and morality. Whatever that means. That if you've not heard someone say, listen, there's a lot of different religious ideas out there and, and it's not that important which one you choose. It's just important that you would be sincere. If you just really believe it, I think whoever God is, he honors that. You know, he knows we don't know everything and, and, and he, it's just a sincerity thing. And, and this idea that somehow if you, if you just, if you really believe it, um, you know, God's going to let us into heaven. Um, and, and you know when you really see this, and it's shocking. You go, have you ever been to a funeral for somebody that you know did not follow God? You watched them their whole life and they didn't follow God, and yet when you go to the funeral, everybody's talking about how they're going to be in a better place, and, this, and, and you go, wow. Um, really? I mean, is that what we really believe? That's not what the Bible says. There's another popular view out there, and that is that um, God grades on a curve. And I'm at least above average, right? I may not be the best, but I'm at least above average. Do you ever take a class that was graded on a curve? I remember I was uh, in college, um, I had to transfer, I went to junior college, transferred to the university, and it, it was the semester I had to finish all, the, all those classes I had put off, because I didn't want to take them if I was going to actually transfer, and I had to take a physics class, now science is not my thing, and so I had to take this physics class, and it was only offered that semester at 7 a.m. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Now have you ever seen a college student at 7 a.m.? It's not a pretty sight. And I had to go Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 7 a.m. and take physics. Now, to add to the beauty of this, um, we walked into the classroom, found some desks, sat down, and the guy walks in, and um, he explains to us that he's never taught before, but he's a um, laid-off aerospace engineer, and now he's going to be teaching this class. And I thought, well, he's an engineer. He must know physics, right? So this should be fine. And then he proceeds to walk over to the wall, turn off all the lights in the room, come over and he turned on the overhead projector. You remember those overhead projectors? This was right after stone and chisel. We had overhead projectors. And um, the overhead projector is projecting, and here's what he did. He turns around, he takes his pen, and he writes on the overhead every word that he spoke in his lecture for an hour with his back to us in the dark. Speaking about physics. And uh, I looked around about 20 minutes into the class and I was the only one awake. And that time, at that point, I gave myself permission to go ahead and join the rest and we snored through the rest of the class until the lights came on. Then a bunch of us gathered afterwards and we got together and we made an agreement. We put a schedule together 
who would come on Mondays, who would come on Wednesdays, and who would come on Fridays, and we agreed to share notes. And, and we did not learn one thing about physics. So if you ever find yourself, say, um, you're up in a private plane and the engine starts to sputter and you think, who can I call? Don't call me. <laughs> I can't help you. I, I, I could pray for you. That's what I can do. Said, I don't know anything about physics, but here's what I do know. I pulled 52% of the class and got a B. Praise God for grading on the curve. If that teacher had used a straight scale, no one would have passed the test and he would have got fired. So he decided to grade on a curve and my 52% looked pretty good. And so somehow I made it through college because of a, a curve scale. Um, we'd love it sometimes if God graded on a curve. Because we all sort of think of ourselves as not perfect, but not bad. I read, an, I read a study, this is fascinating, this was done back in 1990 when the high school students took the SAT. They had 800,000 high school students fill out this survey before they took their SAT test. And they asked them to sort of grade themselves against average um, on different areas. And one of them was, how well do you get along with others? 60% of the 800,000 put themselves in the top 10%. So 60% of them thought they were in the top 10%. How many of them out of 800,000 do you think put themselves below average? Zero. Out of 800,000 people who answered the survey, zero were below average at getting along with people. Now I'm sure that they thought, well, I, I don't always get along with people, but that's the other guy's fault, right? In their mind, all of them considered themselves above average. We know that 400,000 of them were below average, whatever average is. But none of them saw themselves that way. That's how people like to look at themselves. We like to think of ourselves as not perfect, but certainly above average. And if I'm above average when I come to stand before God, what's he going to do? Just wash us all away? He's going to be gracious. He's going to be kind. He's going to let the top half in. That's how we tend to look at it. That's what the world has to say. What does the Bible say on these subjects? Hopefully I gave you enough time to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's read it together. Ephesians 2 beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom, among them... We too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one may boast. Apparently, as I said, the apostle wasn't running for office. He just comes right out and says, let me tell you about you, which I appreciate so much. 
when you read these words, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, <coughs> in Greek, the word you there is plural. It means all of y'all. Okay? And, and, and so when he says, when all of y'all were dead in all of y'all's trespasses and sins. That's how we would say this if we were doing this in Georgia. Um, what he's saying is we're all in the exact same boat here. So when I'm talking to you, I'm saying, Paul says, you were all dead in your trespasses and sins. There were, no, there were no people who came from the right family and therefore they were not dead. There were no people who did enough good works and therefore they were not dead. He says we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Who is this spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience? Right? He's saying we used to walk according to Satan's pattern. We talk about walking with Jesus. He's saying everybody, everybody that doesn't know Jesus is walking with Satan. Okay, these are bold claims. These are offensive statements. These are the kind of things that should get people upset. How dare he say this about us? Look at verse 3. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. I love that he says this to us. He doesn't say, and don't forget there's a world out there filled with these kinds of people. He says, and don't forget you were these kinds of people. Anything that has changed in your life to make you different than that is by the grace of God and His grace alone. So let's not think for a second that we stand here and say, well, the reason that God loves me, the reason I'm in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ is because I deserve it. Somehow He looked at me and said, wow, that's a special one. i got to have that one. That's not what it is. He says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, spiritually helpless. Now let me illustrate this because I still think no matter how loudly I shout it, we don't get it. I want you to turn to the Gospel of John, third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I want you to go to John 11, if you will. Because in John 11, we have this story of um, these three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, two sisters and a brother, they're dear friends of Jesus. They're supporters of his ministry. He spends a lot of time with them. And as you read the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, you run across them again and again. Okay? Jesus loves them very much. And in chapter 11, verse 1, it begins to tell us a little more about them. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, it was, Mary who anointed, <coughs> excuse me, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And so the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So it's not going well for Lazarus. Some of us this week can relate to that. Has anybody here not been sick in the last two weeks? Like the stuff that is going around. I'm trying to preach without coughing but I'm uh, finding it difficult. Uh, he was sick. And when he was sick, they said, let's call for Jesus. Now, when he's sick, why call for Jesus? Why not call for a doctor? 
What is it they thought Jesus might be able to do? Heal him. And why would they think that? Because they had watched him heal lepers and blind people and deaf people and paralytics and on and on and on it goes. They had watched him heal people he had never met. They watched him heal people whose name he didn't, uh, whose name, who didn't even know his name. And, and, and here's Lazarus, one of his best friends in the whole world, and he's sick. I mean, really sick. And so they send for Jesus because they know Jesus can heal. But look what happens. Continue reading in verse 4. When Jesus heard this, he said, The sickness is not to end in death for the glory of God, so that God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Okay, that's important, verse 5. He loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. He loved them. So, because he loved them, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He gets word, your dear friend is sick, and he's sick unto death. They're like, we're not sure he's going to make it. He's in intensive care, and we need you now. And, he, and then it says, now he loved them, so he waited. And you know the story, right? What happened while he waited? Lazarus died. So he waits two more days, and then you have the days of travel. And by the time he gets back there, Lazarus is not just sick, he's dead. And he didn't just die, he's been dead for days. He waited. And he had already been buried. And he'd been dead for four days. The funeral had come and gone. The tomb was sealed. And I want you to skip down to verse uh, 39. Jesus shows up. He says, I want to go to the grave. He missed the funeral, so a group of people go with him to the grave, including the sisters. And they're going to go, and they're just going to mourn and weep at the grave and have another little memorial service, right? And, and Jesus gets to the grave, and look what he says in verse 39. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Now, I don't know if anybody here is using the old King James Version, but I love the way verse 39 reads in the King James Version. It says, by now he stinketh. He stinketh. And why doth he stinketh? He stinketh because he is dead. And the body can only do one thing when it's dead, and that is decay. Decay is already taking place because he's dead. And when someone is dead, it is too late to pray for healing. When someone is dead, there's nothing they can do for themselves, and there's nothing you can do for them. When someone is dead, the story is finished. He stinketh by now. And yet Jesus calls for them to open up the tomb. And when he calls for this, look what it says. Skip down to verse uh, 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who died came forth. There should not be a sentence 
that says the man who died came forth. Because dead people can't come forth, right? So what does that tell us? He's no longer dead. He goes from dead to alive. And here's my question. What did he do to bring that about? What did Lazarus do to raise himself? How did he manage to pull himself up by his bootstraps? What did he contribute to this? Did, did he just, you know, get all of his gumption together in the midst of four days of death and go, you know what, I'm going to give it one more shot. Did he do that? No. Did, did he somehow do some good spiritual work that God said, oh, now you've earned another few weeks on earth, go back? No. He didn't do anything. You know how I know he didn't do anything? Because he's dead. Dead people can't do anything to revive themselves. But yet he came forth. You know what he did? He responded to the life-giving voice of Jesus. God brought him forth. He didn't shake the dust off and loosen up his muscles and walk out of that tomb. God brought him forth. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins apart from Christ. Now, if you again, you've been living in the 21st century, I guarantee you've seen some sort of zombie movie or zombie television show or something with zombies, right? And, and that's what this made me think of. People who are dead, but they look alive, sort of. But if you're watching a zombie movie and there's like a bunch of people coming from down there and you want to know if they're zombies or not, how can you tell? You watch how they walk, right? Because how do zombies walk? Uh, right? No, you don't need to see that again. Everybody's getting their video cameras out. Yeah, let's watch this again. Right? You can tell a zombie by the way he walks. He doesn't look right. <laughs> Something's not quite right here, right? And you can see that. And here's the deal. There's a whole lot of people, according to Paul, who are walking around this earth even though they're dead. Spiritually dead. Unable to save themselves. That is the condition he says we're in apart from Christ. Now go back to Ephesians 2. I want us to look again at verse 2. Ephesians 2.2 2, In which you... <coughs> excuse me, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He's saying that apart from Christ, people still walk around like zombies. It's not just that he stinketh, we stinketh. That's what he's saying. That same way of living that so many of us look down upon in others today was indicative of our lives before Christ graciously saved us. That was us. And if you're glad that's no longer you, could you say amen? amen? Amen. And you know what? If you said amen, and you have passed from this zombie-like you know, way of living into actual life, you know what you did to contribute to that process? Absolutely nothing. 
If you're dead in your trespasses and sins, then you have as much chance of reviving yourself as Lazarus had of reviving himself after he already stinketh. But Jesus comes along and he changes everything when he calls to you and says, come forth from death into life. And when that happened in your life, you did absolutely nothing to contribute to it. He did it for you. Look what it says in verse 3. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath. That's who we were. So how in the world can we despise people who are still stuck in that place? How in the world do we look down from our pedestal and go, oh, you bad people? See, we should have, as Christians, this, this idea of Christians being judgmental and this idea of Christians being arrogant and looking down on people who are still caught up in sin. There should be no place for that. Because Christians, of all people, ought to be the gentlest, the kindest, the most understanding, the most respectful people in all the world. Because the life that we now know that we have in Christ because we're living it, we know what it was like when we didn't have it. We ought to be so blown away by thankfulness for the grace of God that we could never look down upon anybody who's still stuck in it. In fact, what we would want to do is pray for them, reach out to them, and care for them because that too was us. If it hadn't been for God's grace, we would still be there. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what he's done for us. We didn't do it for ourselves. People think God grades on a curve and I'm better than average. We think I may not be perfect, but my goods outweigh my bads and I'll take my chances. We think, you know what? Maybe, maybe God will give extra credit. Now that I'm getting to the last part of my life, if I do some really good works here at the end, maybe that will be enough. Maybe I can, I can bring myself up out of this death. You can't. It's by grace. It's the only way. If it depended upon us, it would fail every time. So when people think that they'll see to their own salvation by doing more good than bad or keeping religious rules. They're just kidding themselves. And God shakes his head and he says, it doesn't work that way. The only way to be saved is by the grace of God. And when people are spiritually dead, they can't even discern spiritual truth. Their only hope is God's amazing grace, just like it was my only hope as well. We can't even muster up within ourselves the faith to believe God. Even that has to be given to us. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's a gracious act that he saves you, and he does it by faith. You go, aha, faith, that's my part. I knew I had a part in this. Faith, I have to believe. Don't I have to believe? Doesn't it say if you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. I have to believe, right? That's my part. You're right. You do have to believe. And how do you believe? It says the faith to believe is given as a gift. You can't even find it within yourself. You can't afford to buy it. There's no way to get it. And God gives us the faith to believe. 
I'll never forget. It was a Saturday afternoon. I was in high school. I was sitting home watching a game with my dad. And we heard a pounding on our front door. It sounded urgent. I jumped up. I went to the door. There was a little kid who I knew from the neighborhood. He had ridden up on his bike. And he looked terrified. And he said, there's something wrong with your neighbor. And so I went outside and I looked across the street where we had an elderly gentleman who lived by himself. And he was out in the yard raking leaves where he had been. But now he was laying face down in a pile of leaves. And so I ran across the street. And I got him and I pulled him over. And he was purple from here to here. And I checked the pulse. There was no pulse. I put my ear on his chest to listen for a heartbeat. There was no heartbeat. And I checked him for breathing. And there was no breathing. I don't know how long he'd been down, but he'd been down a long time. So what did I do? I breathed for him. Right? I, I was in high school. I'd never taken a CPR class at that point, but I watched Emergency on TV. <laughs> and I knew you breathe for the person. So I breathed, and then I pushed on his chest, and then I breathed, and I pushed on his chest while I waited for an ambulance to come. And by the time the paramedics got there, he was breathing on his own. He went back to the hospital. He had had a massive heart attack. He had to have surgery. He was in the hospital a long time. And he came home. And when he came home... Yes, when he came home, he had a story to tell. But his story was not about how he saved himself from the brink of death. His story was about how he was already dead when someone found him and gave him back his life. See, that's, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about laying face down in the gutter of your sin dead. And God looks at you and says, I'm going to breathe for you. I'm going to give you life that you never would have had without me. Salvation is by God's intervention. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It all comes as a free gift of God. So we had better not boast. Look what it says in verse 9 not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are all in the same boat. Dead people made alive by Christ if we've been made alive at all. What do we have to boast about? We need to join with Paul and say, I boast in this alone. Christ my Lord and Him crucified. That's all I have to boast about. The world can say what it will about being good enough. But when it comes to salvation, our only hope is Jesus. Amen? Amen? That's it. The world can believe whatever it wants about being sincere. People thinking that in the spiritual realm, um, you know, we don't really have to get it exactly right. Isn't that weird? In what other area of life do people think, well, you know, it doesn't matter if I, if I had it right as long as I was sincere. Would that work in any other thing? If you... If you jumped off a building believing you could really fly, would you not hit the ground? I mean, if you were really sincere, right? Well, let's say you needed to go to Phoenix, and so you jumped on the 605 South. Would that take you to Phoenix? What if you were sure it would? Of course not. We don't think that's true in any other area of life, but when it comes to spiritual things, we go, well, you know, who knows? You know, as long as you're sincere, I'm sure it'll get you into heaven. Guys, that's not what the Bible says. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father 
except through me. And you can't get there if he doesn't give you the faith to believe. It's all by grace. This is eternity we're talking about. That's why I don't mind if somebody's offended today. This is not a game that we're playing. This is life. And the Bible says that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He's the only one who can make that happen. Dead men don't save themselves. That's what Good Friday is all about. That's what this whole Passion Week is all about. Jesus riding in on a donkey on Palm Sunday. All the activities that took place during the week leading up to the crucifixion and then the resurrection. You know what it's all about? It's about the fact that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it's not just him who was raised. It's we who are raised with him unto new life. We who were formerly dead can be made alive. So how do you respond to a gospel message like that? How do you respond to a God like that who looks at you? And, and we're not even talking. Guys, the Lazarus example is not even that good. Because he liked Lazarus. We're his enemies. So what we're saying is, God comes along and finds his sworn enemy lying face down in the gutter, dead. And for that enemy, he gives his only son to pay the price so that that enemy can actually live. It's an amazing Amazing story. What do you do with that story? Well, I guess it depends on where you find yourself today. If you're a person today who has to say, listen, I know that I'm not, I'm not right with God. I know that, you know, I really, I can't save myself. It doesn't matter if I'm better than average. I, I know that if I come to look God in the eye, I'm going to have to put my head down because I'm a sinner. And I've never responded to his call. Well, the answer for what you do is very simple. Respond to his call. He's standing outside your tomb and you already stinketh. And he says, come forth. What if Lazarus had just said, you know what, it's nice and cool in here. I think I'll just stay dead. That's what a whole lot of people do with the voice of Jesus. If he gives you the faith to believe, exercise that faith. Take that step and surrender to God and say, Lord, it's going to be all about you and I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. He'll give you eternal life. And it's the only way it's ever going to happen. No more excuses. No more trying it your way. No more pretending you've got it all figured out. No more bravado about how you, you know, might as well go to hell because all your friends are going to be there anyway. No more of that stuff. How about this? How about you fall on your face before a God who loves you so much that he gave his only son and you become his child and you find out what life is really all about. And if you've already done that, and I'm sure that most of us in this room have, how about humbling yourself? How about recognizing that you are who you are in Christ by his grace alone and nothing else? that you haven't done anything to save yourself and you're not doing anything to keep yourself. You haven't done anything to fix yourself and you haven't been able to restore yourself. All of it is being done by God in the person of the Holy Spirit. And how about being humbled in the fact that God loves us so much that he's done that for us. 
even though we deserve hell. And how about praising Him for it? And how about thinking about those people that we tend to look down upon and judge and say, boy, these people are ruining the world. America's going to hell in a handbasket. All these people with all their wrong beliefs and all their wrong behaviors. How about we forget about judging them and we start praying for them? And how about we start loving them? And how about we start sharing what Jesus is doing in our own lives with them? How about we take those cards and our bulletins and we say, you know what? I will not get through this week without handing these out and telling somebody they need to come and hear the story of Jesus. See, this new life, it changes everything. When you stop walking like a zombie and you start walking with life. How about we do that? By grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God and not as a result of works that no man should boast. God really is awesome, isn't he? Let's stand together.